recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org. Today is Friday, October 12, 2012. Tonight I'll be presenting Luke chapter 17. In Luke chapter 16, Christ is recorded as having given a lengthy discourse concerning wealth and the love of mammon or riches beginning with the parable which warns concerning the behavior of the sons of light as opposed to the sons of this age. He then proceeded with the warning about those forcing their way into the kingdom of God. And then he presented another parable and an example of a wealthy man who had failed to extend assistance to the poor man, Lazarus. All of this actually presents diverse parts of a consistent moral lesson concerning the behavior of the sons of light, that they should not act as the sons of this age in pursuit of unrighteous riches, of wealth obtained through unjust means, and that they should be wary of those outsiders forcing their way into the kingdom of God, and that if they were to become wealthy, they risk losing their own reward in the kingdom in the event that they forsake their brethren as the rich man had not considered the needs of Lazarus. Putting all these things together and studying the history of Europe, one should re of, of white Christian civilization in Europe specifically, one should recognize that many from the noble classes throughout our history have thought that it was beneficial to have the Antichrist Jewish usurers around for the sake of commerce. Kings used these Jews in the hopes of they themselves profiting from Jewish vice and usury. Allowed a Jew to get rich and you can tax the Jew was the usual mentality in England. In the meantime, the Jews acquired great wealth, having the business of capital and usury exclusively to themselves, since Christians were barred from such practices. If Christians had only heeded the words of Christ in Luke chapter 16, they may have recognized the connection between the pursuit of wealth and the infiltration and corruption of the kingdom of God, which has led to the very situation that we suffer today. With that, I will commence with Luke chapter 17, verse 1. Then he said to his students, It is impossible for scandals not to come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone is placed around his neck and he were cast into the sea, then he should be offended by the least one of these. The least one of these seeming to be children in the vicinity of Christ. The word scandals from the Greek word scandalon may have been rendered in this context as offenses or transgressions. The word appears only here in Luke, but it is often used by Paul 
and it is defined as a trap or a snare laid for an enemy. Metaphorically, a stumbling block, an offense or a scandal by Liddell and Scott. It is obviously the source for our English word scandal. Aside from the words for sin, the usual words for offense or transgression in the Greek, as the King James Version translates them, are parabasis or parapetoma. It appears to this commentator, the King James Version often overlooking the shades, the nuances of difference between many of these words, that the word scandala, scandals, seems to be sins which men are trapped into making, either through deceit or lust or through weakness, where the other words seem to denote a sense of purpose on the part of they who make the transgressions which those words describe or designate. These words of Christ here in this, these opening verses of Luke 17 were in response to the parables which he gave in Luke chapter 16. They come immediately after the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The warning seems to be leveled once again at the wealthy who in their riches neglect the future of the kingdom of God, which lies in its children. Rather, the wealthy of this world have historically taken advantage of children, and they do so today, corrupting them for their own gain. In a different conversation, in Matthew chapter 18, we see a similar discourse. It is not merely a record of this same discourse, a different record of this same discourse. And I'll quote from Matthew 18, 6. But he whom would offend, and that word offend is from the same word, scandalon, from a verb, one of these little ones who believes in me, it is better for him that a millstone would be hung around his neck and he'd be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to society because of offenses. Again, the word scandal on, wherever offenses occurs in this passage. Indeed, it is a necessity for offenses to come. But woe to that man through whom the offense comes. Now, if your hand or your foot entrap you, chop it off and cast it from you. It is good for you to enter into life crippled. When we pass from this world, being Christians, being children of God, that is when we enter into life, our true life. It is good for you to enter into life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the eternal fire. And if your eye entraps you, take it out and cast it from you. It is good for you with one eye to enter into life than having two eyes to be cast into Gehenna for the fire. So from that passage, we see that Christ was indeed talking about children when, after the passage of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, he gave a warning about it being impossible for scandals not to come and said that it would be better for him if a millstone is placed around his neck and he were cast into the sea that he should be offended by the least one of these. 
Now children are central to the kingdom of God. Luke 17.3 Watch yourselves. If your brother should do wrong, admonish him. And if he should repent, forgive him. And if on each of seven days he should do wrong to you, and seven times should turn to you saying, I repent, you forgive him. The King James reading where it has seven times in a day is based upon the Codex's Alexandrinus, Washingtonensis, and the majority text. That passage is omitted in the Christogenian New Testament. Those words are omitted in the Christogenian New Testament because it follows the older codices, the Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. And that also agrees with the Codex Bezae here. Here we see the measure by which Yahweh our God shall forgive us. And by that measure, we should forgive our repentant brethren. Jeremiah 33, 8. And we'll, go, we'll see how far our God goes to forgive us. That's how far we should go to forgive our repentant brethren when they transgress against us. Jeremiah 33, 8. And I will cleanse them, speaking of the children of Israel, from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all of their iniquities, whereby they have sinned, and whereby they have transgressed against me. Similarly, in Ezekiel 37:23, and I quote, Neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of all of their dwelling places wherein they have sinned, and will cleanse them. So shall they be my people, and I will be their God. If we expect Yahweh to cleanse us of our sins, then we must forgive our brethren of theirs. From Matthew chapter 7. Do not condemn in order that you would not be condemned. For with the judgment by which you condemn, you shall be judged. And with the measure by which you measure, it shall be measured with you. If we are unforgiving of our brethren, our God will be equally unforgiving of us. Now, how do you see the stick which is in the eye of your brother? But the beam which is in your own eye, you do not perceive. Or how do you say to your brother, let me extract the stick from your eye, and behold, the beam is in your eye. Hypocrite, extract first the beam from your eye, and then you will see clearly to extract the stick from the eye of your brother. Those who want to throw any of the children of Yahweh into the lake of fire should heed these things, because Yahweh will cleanse all of the sins of the children of Israel, and all of Israel shall be saved. Luke 17, verse 5. And the ambassadors, or apostles, said to the prince, add to our faith. The phrases literally add faith to us. Then the prince said, if you have faith as a grain of mustard, you may say to this mulberry tree, you must be rooted up and planted in the sea, and it would submit to you. 
This is a real hard thing for Christians to cope with. With faith, we must overcome our trials. With faith, our trials either fall to the wayside or they are made easy for us to bear. As Paul says, we will not be tested beyond where we can stand it. With faith, we can move mountains, figuratively speaking. In our faith, we regard our trials as nothing. Romans chapter 8, from verse 18. Therefore, I consider that the happenstances of the present time are not of value, looking to the future honor to be revealed to us. Indeed, in earnest anticipation, the creation awaits the revelation of the sons of Yahweh. To transientness, the the creation was not subjected willingly, but on account of he who subjected it in expectation, that also the creation itself shall be liberated from the bondage of decay into the freedom of the honor of the children of Yahweh. For we know that the whole creation laments together and travails together until then. And that phrase, the whole creation, as is revealed later on in that chapter of Romans, especially verses 31 through 38, refers to the singular Adamic creation of man, as Paul illustrates, where he compares it to any other creation. Speaking of heights and depths and angels and other such things. Likewise, Peter has the same message in 1 Peter chapter 1 from verse 3. Blessed is Yahweh, even the Father of our Prince, Yahshua Christ, who according to his great mercy has engendered us from above into a living hope through the resurrection of Yahshua Christ from among the dead. For an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading being kept in the heavens for us. That doesn't mean that we'll have it in the heavens. And we'll see that at the end of this chapter. Who are being preserved by the power of Yahweh through faith for a salvation prepared to be revealed in the last time. And now to the crux of the matter, verse 6. In which you must rejoice if for a short time now it is necessary being pained by various trials in order that the test of your faith much more valuable than gold, which is destroyed even being tested by fire, would be found in praise and honor and dignity at the revelation of Yahshua Christ, whom not having seen you love, and whom now not seeing but believing you rejoice with an indescribable and illustrious joy, acquiring the result of your faith, preservation of your souls. Luke 17, verse 7. Who from among you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, who coming in from the field, says to him, immediately coming forth, you recline? Rather, would you not say to him, prepare something that I may have at dinner? And girding yourself, serve me while I eat and I drink. And after these things you shall eat and drink. Does he not have thanks for the servant that he do the things appointed? There are words in the King James Version found at the end of verse 9, I trow not, literally, I think not. 
Those words are found in the codices Alexandrinus, Beze, Washingtonensis, and in the majority text. They're wanting in the Christogenian New Testament, which follows the 3rd century papyrus, P75, and the older codices Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. Men have servants, as Christ relates here, from whom they expect to always and continually be served. Yet God has servants, and when they serve God, he serves them in turn. From John chapter 13, from verse 12, speaking of Christ, Therefore, when he washed their feet and took his garments and reclined again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and prince, and you speak well, for I am. Therefore, if I, the prince and the teacher, or the Lord and the teacher, have washed your feet, you are also obliged to wash the feet of one another. For I have given to you an example, in order that just as I have done for you, you also should do. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor an ambassador greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you would do them. We serve God, and God serves us in turn. When our brethren serve us, we serve them in turn. We don't elevate ourselves above our brother. Luke 17, verse 10. Thusly also you, when you have done all the things appointed to you, say that we are useless servants who are obliged to do what we have done? The question is rhetorical. Useless servants fulfill their obligations and stop there. Useful servants fulfill their obligations happily and seek to do more. The good master as we have just related, finds value in his servants and rewards them after they have fulfilled their obligations. Yahweh our God is indeed such a master. However, not anybody can claim for themselves to be a servant of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Men choose their servants. It is not the other way around. Yahweh has stated many times that he has chosen Israel. And I'll take this opportunity to recall some of them. And not only did he choose Israel, but he chose their seed after them. The descendants of genetic Israel alone are the servant race of God. And if they serve God, if they choose to serve him, he will reward them. Psalm 136 from verse 21. And he gave their land, the land of the Canaanites, for a heritage, for his mercy endures forever even a heritage unto Israel his servant, for his mercy endures forever. All Israel will be saved. Isaiah 41. Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen. Thus saith Yahweh that made thee, and formed thee from the womb, who will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou, yes, who run, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit, not upon the world, upon thy seed, 
and my blessing upon thy offspring. Isaiah 41, verse 8. But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. Thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called thee from the chief men thereof, and said unto thee, Thou art my servant, I have chosen thee, and not cast thee away. Isaiah chapter 41 was being written as the children of Israel were being deported by the Assyrians. Or perhaps even after they had been deported. Isaiah chapter 44. Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for thou art my servant. I have formed thee, thou art my servant. O Israel, thou shalt not be forgotten of me. Old Testament Israel. God does not lie. New Testament Israel is one and the same. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. That was fulfilled in Christ. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 3. And said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Jeremiah, 130 years after the deportations of Israel had ended, approximately. I'm sorry, 90 years after, 130 years after they began. Therefore fear not, Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 10. O my servant Jacob, saith Yahweh, neither be dismayed, O Israel, for lo, I will save thee from afar, and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return, and shall be in rest, and be quiet, and none shall make him afraid. Jeremiah chapter 46. But fear thou not, O Jacob, my servant, and be not dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save thee from afar off, and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return, and be in rest and at ease, and none shall make him afraid. Practically the same words we just read from Jeremiah chapter 30. And here I'll read a couple of further passages. Fear thou not, O Jacob my servant, saith Yahweh, for I am with thee, for I will make a full end of all the nations whether I have driven thee. So much for universalism. But I will not make a full end of thee, but correct thee in measure. Yet will I not leave thee wholly unpunished. Ezekiel chapter 28 from verse 25. Thus saith Yahweh God, when I shall have gathered the house of Israel from among the people whom they are scattered, and shall be sanctified in them in the sight of the heathen, then shall they dwell in their land that I have given to my servant Jacob. It never changes. Only the children of Israel are the servants of God. The final proof, Luke chapter 1, 
from verse 54. He has come to the aid. Luke, in chapter 1, expresses the purpose of the new covenant, expresses the purpose of the appearance of the Messiah. He has come to the aid of his servant Israel to call mercy into remembrance. Just as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring for the age. The New Testament Israel of Luke is the same Old Testament Israel of the prophets who belong to the fathers. Whose is the service? Who are the servants? Paul says that in Romans chapter 9. Therefore, only the children of Israel could ever claim to be the servants of God here to fulfill the purposes of God. Luke 17, chapter, verse 11. And it came to pass while traveling to Jerusalem that he had passed through the center of Samaria and Galilee. And upon his coming into a certain town, they encountered ten leprous men who had stood afar off. The Codex Sinaiticus has ten leprous men went to meet him and wants the words who had stood afar off. Verse 13. And they raised their voices, saying, Yahshua, Master, have mercy on us. They knew his name. And seeing them, he said to them, Going, show yourselves to the priests. And it happened that with their going off, they were cleansed. Then one of them, seeing that he was healed, returned with a great voice extolling Yahweh, and fell upon his face by his feet, thanking him. And he was a Samaritan. And replying, Yahshua said, Were not ten cleansed? Then where are the nine? Are there none found returning to give honor to Yahweh except he who is of another race? And he said to him, Arising, go, your faith has preserved you. The word alogenase means literally of another race, a stranger, according to Liddell and Scott. And the word appears only here in the New Testament. It does appear many times in the Septuagint. While the word certainly may be used to signify a non-Adamic or a non-white person as we think of the word race, that interpretation is not compulsory. For it may only signify that the man is merely a non-Judean or a non-Israelite. The Greek definition of race, that's at the crux of the matter here. As the words genea and genos were employed, often being narrower than our modern definition, in fact, they're always narrower, actually, than our modern definition, could signify a tribe or another subdivision within a nation, or even only a particular family. So it's the understanding of the word race that's very different in the modern mind than it was the ancient Greek mind. According to Liddell and Scott, Herodotus and others used the words 
genos, genea, to describe a tribal subdivision within a nation. However, the word was also used to describe the nation, the people of a nation as a whole. As Liddell and Scott also attest with many examples from Greek literature. The man, being a Samaritan, was most certainly an Adamic man, since it was Adamic people from all over Mesopotamia, which the Assyrians had brought into Samaria when they deported the children of Israel. And there remained a remnant of the children of Israel in Samaria for all that time also. The word race in Greek, the words genos and genea can refer only to, they could refer to the people of an entire homogenous nation, or they could refer to any subdivision of that nation. In ancient times, the children of Israel would have been considered a race, even among the Hebrews, because they were all descendants of Jacob. They were a common race within a larger ethnic nation. When the children of Israel branched out, became very numerous, and became many nations, they were still a race. And today we apply the term to all of the same species who are apparently of the same kind and consider them a race. Most of the white people of Europe today actually do descend from the ancient children of Israel. So in ancient times where you had one nation and different families in it may have been considered to be of different races or the nation of the whole could have been considered to be of one race as long as they were homogenous. Well, when that one nation branched out and became many nations, we still consider that to be the same race, to be one race today. We look at whites and consider them to be a race. The Greeks had a narrower sense of the word. So the Samaritan, being allogenes, being of another race, that doesn't make him a non-white as we think of the term. He simply wasn't of the race of the people of Judah or of the people of Judea, which themselves were diverse races at this time. But Christ really isn't considering the Edomites in that discourse. The word faith. Christ told the Samaritan that your faith has preserved you. The word faith in the phrase your faith has preserved you may just as well have been translated as belief. Modern Christians often attach a special esoteric or spiritual meaning to the word faith. However, the Greek word pistis is merely trust or faith or belief in something, confidence or an assurance in a thing. It is the common word used to express all of those ideas in ancient Greek. There's another word, pythos, which means persuasion. The Samaritan man simply believed that Yahshua had cleansed him, that they, his cleansing came from God. 
and Yahshua did cleanse him. And he credited the man for having that belief. The man's faith was only a belief that Yahshua healed him. In contrast, or that God healed him through Yahshua. In contrast, and as Paul defines it in Romans chapter 4, the faith of Abraham was the belief that God was true when he said that many nations would come out from, from out of his loins, from his physical descendants, as Yahweh had promised him. So Abraham had a faith that was different from the faith of this Samaritan man who merely believed that his cleansing came from God because he extolled God and thanked God and praised God upon his being cleansed. So even this man's having faith, well, well, that doesn't make him a member of the faith. Whenever the word faith is used in the Bible, it does not necessarily refer to the specific Christian faith, which I can properly sum up in a profession of the belief that Christ came and died in order to redeem the children of Israel. Notice, of course, how ungrateful the nine children of Israel were here, even though they were cleansed of their leprosy. And think about how many times we have all taken gifts from God and even gifts from each other for granted. We need God while we're in a time of trouble, and as soon as we're out of that time of trouble, it's easy to forget God. Luke 17, verse 20. Then being asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of Yahweh would come, he replied to them and said, the kingdom of Yahweh does not come along with observation, nor shall they say, behold, it is here, or it is there. For behold, the kingdom of Yahweh is among you. The kingdom of Yahweh is among you. The popular dispensationalist interpretation of this passage is that Christ said that the kingdom of Yahweh is within you, and they use that as an excuse to make spiritual Israelites, even though the Bible insists that Israelites are genetic. The King James Version and other popular translations read the Greek here to say the kingdom of Yah God, the kingdom of God is within you. The word rendered among in the Christogenian New Testament, the kingdom of Yahweh is among you, is entos. That's the word which the other versions, of course, render as within. Entos, Strong's number 1787, accompanied with the genitive plural pronoun humon, or you in the plural, y'all, they would say down south, is rendered among in the Christogenian New Testament in order to avoid any misunderstanding of the intended meaning. Joseph Thayer, in his Greek-English lexicon, properly explains this passage where, in his entry for the word entos, he states, entos humon, within you, i.e., in the midst of you, Luke seventeen twenty one. 
and to show that that usage of the word is the correct understanding. Sayer cites a similar usage in the profane work Anabasis by Xenophon, Book 1, Chapter 10, Section 3, for an example. Sayer then goes on to explain, and I quote, others, meaning others' interpretations here, within you, i.e. in your souls, a meaning, and these are Joseph Thayer's words, a meaning which the use of the word permits, but not the context. And they are Thayer's words. Thayer is telling us that in Luke 17, 21, the context does not allow us to render the passage the way the King James Version has it. Joseph Thayer is telling us that it should say the kingdom of Yahweh or the kingdom of God, if you will, is among you. That's because the pronoun is plural. Paul's use of the synonym eso, eso is a synonym of entos. At 1 Corinthians 5.12 is much like the use of entos here. In 1 Corinthians 5.12, Paul talks, well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul talks of unrepentant sinners and how they should be put out of the assembly. And he asks in verse 12, what is it to me to judge those outside? Not at all should you judge those within you. That's the way the Christogenian New Testament reads. Translating that passage, I purposely use the term within as the King James Version also has it there, in order to help illustrate what the term should mean here in Luke 17.21 in the King James Version. In Paul's statement, the pronoun for you is also plural. And in the context, the phrase clearly means among you. Not at all should you judge those who are among you, referring to individuals amongst a larger group. And that is how this similar phrase should be understood here in Luke 17, 21. For Christ is saying, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Yahweh, is among you, meaning that it is in the midst of the group of people whom he is addressing. The general context in which the phrase is kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, are used throughout Scripture, also helps to establish the veracity of this as the correct interpretation. Among the many examples are these, and I will quote Matthew 19.24, where Christ says, And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy man to enter into the kingdom of Yahweh. Notice that it does not say that the kingdom of God could not enter into the wealthy man, but that the wealthy man could not enter into the kingdom of God. And Matthew 21, 31, in part, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and the whores shall go into the kingdom of Yahweh before you. Likewise, publicans and whores enter into the kingdom, not the kingdom into them. Mark chapter 10, verse 13. 
And they had brought to him children in order that he may engage with them. But the students admonished them. And seeing it, Yahshua was annoyed and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not prevent them. For of such as these is the kingdom of Yahweh. And here we see that the kingdom of Yahweh is composed of people such as these children. It is not in people, the people are in it. Luke chapter 13. And there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you should see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of the prophets in the kingdom of Yahweh, but you are being cast outside. And they shall arrive from east and west and from north and south, and they shall recline in the kingdom of Yahweh. The kingdom is not taken out of the undeserving. Rather, the undeserving are excluded from the kingdom. With all of this, we see that the dispensationalist interpretation of Luke 17:21 and the King James translation that the kingdom of Yahweh, the kingdom of God is within you, that those things are absurd. Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you that there are some of those standing here whom shall by no means taste of death until they should see the kingdom of Yahweh having come with power. Now, if the kingdom of Yahweh was within these faithful people whom Christ speaks of, then they would not have to see it, nor would they have to wait for it. Neither does the kingdom actually come with observation. As Christ says here in Luke, that the kingdom of Yahweh does not come along with observation. Nor shall they say, behold, it is here, or it is there. For behold, the kingdom of Yahweh is among you. As he says in John, unless a man should be born from above, he is not able to see the kingdom of Yahweh. We see the kingdom, but we do not see it coming, if indeed we are children of Israel. Because we, we are the kingdom, if we are the children of Israel. We are the kingdom. Christ told the larger group, which consisted of a fair number of Edomites and other Canaanites, that the kingdom of God is among you because it was. For the kingdom of God is Christ as king of his people, who are right there among the greater population of Judea. When Christ rules over the earth, populated by his people, then the kingdom of Yahweh shall be established, and all of the others shall be removed. From Luke chapter 1, Verse 32, he shall be great, and he shall be called son of the highest. And Yahweh God shall give to him the throne of David his father. And he shall rule over the house of Jacob, not the house of Jacob and the Gentiles. He shall rule over the house of Jacob, not the house of Jacob and the beasts. He shall rule over the house of Jacob for the ages. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. The kingdom of God is not within each one of us. We, if we are members of the house of Jacob, gain entrance to the kingdom of God. We are members of the kingdom of God. 
Therefore, Christ told the larger audience, the kingdom of Yahweh is among you. Luke 17, verse 22. Then he said to his students, The days are coming when you shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you shall not see it. And they shall say to you, Behold, he is there, or behold, he is here. You should not depart nor give pursuit. For the days are indeed upon us. And they have been for some time now, where we do desire to see the return of Christ, to deliver us from this present evil world. And it is at this very time, more than any other in the past, that men have stood up claiming for themselves to be some sort of Messiah, or even to be Christ himself having returned. A lengthy prophecy concerning the future destruction of Jerusalem and punishment upon the enemies of Christ, mingled with the prophecy concerning the coming of the kingdom of heaven and the return of Christ, is given by Yahshua and is recorded in Luke chapter 21, which is a parallel record of the same discourse of which parts are also found in Matthew chapter 24, and in Mark chapter 13. That's the discourse concerning the destruction of the temple. That discourse is of such a nature because it consists of one answer to three questions posed by the apostles concerning, first, the time of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, second, the time of the fulfillment of the age, and third, the time of the return of Christ. However, these words of Christ found here in Luke chapter 18 are clearly a part of a somewhat earlier and separate discourse, even though they greatly resemble many of the words of Matthew in Matthew chapter 24, where Christ answers those three questions posed by the apostles. That is parallel with Luke chapter 21. Any resemblance which these words here have with Matthew chapter 24 is rather easy to account for once that is realized. And once it is realized that many of the things which Christ taught were things that he must have repeated quite often, with one gospel writer including one such occasion in his gospel, while another gospel writer included a record of a different such occasion. And because Luke included discourse in Luke chapter 18 here, we see that it's a safe bet, or a safe conjecture, if I must, that that is why he omitted similar parts in the discourse of the destruction, the prophecy concerning the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which he records in Luke chapter 21, and which Matthew also records, recording many different parts of the same discourse in Matthew chapter 24, and Mark likewise in Mark chapter 13. 
So Christ must have repeated these things often. One gospel writer including one such occasion in his gospel, while another gospel writer included a record of a different such occasion. This has already been made apparent here in several places as we have proceeded through the Gospel of Luke and contrasted it to parts of the other Gospels. As for this passage, that many would come, or many would say, behold, he is there, meaning Christ, and behold, he is here, meaning Christ, and his warning that you should not depart nor give pursuit. Matthew 24.4 records a statement similar to this one which we've read in Luke 18.23. I'm sorry, Luke 17.23. I think I called this chapter 18 a few minutes ago. And replying, Yahshua said to them, Watch, lest anyone should deceive you. For many shall come by my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they shall deceive many. Now, in the first few centuries of Christianity, many men were preaching false Christs, meaning that they were attributing teachings to Yahshua Christ, which he did not actually intend for us. They were making up statements and sayings, and even entire books and epistles. But it is not evident in the historical records which we have that any of them were actually claiming to be Christ. There were also several, several minor would-be Messiah, Messiah figures in Jerusalem around the time of Christ, mostly before the time of Christ, such as Judas the Golanite, who was described by Josephus and who was really just a tax protester not a Messiah. None of these fits the circumstances which Joshua Christ relates here, either in this passage of Luke 17.23 or in Matthew 24.4. Here, Joshua tells us specifically that many would come claiming to be him. And that has not happened in history until this present era. Over the last two centuries, there have been many figures explicitly claiming to be the Christ, meaning an advent or a reincarnation even of Yahshua Christ. Among these are the Korean named Sun Myung Moon, another Korean named An Sang Hong, a man named Marshall Applewhite, Jim Jones, another name, Baha Ullah. I'm probably destroying that name, but it deserves it. There have been a host of several dozens of other assorted freaks and circus clowns in the last two centuries claiming to be Christ. Therefore, if this prophecy can only be seen to have been realized in more recent times because there is no such attestation of its having happened in the early centuries of Christianity or at any other time, then the other related prophecies given here must also apply to more recent times or to those times on the near horizon. 
Luke 17, 24. For even as lightning flashing illuminates from beneath this part of heaven to beneath that part of heaven. Yes, the translation is very literal. Thusly shall the Son of Man be in his day. A, a statement similar to this is found in Matthew chapter 24, verse 27, where it says, For just as lightning comes, from out, comes out from the east and appears so far as the west, thusly shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Many commentators want to see a special application to the record of Christ's use of the words east and west concerning the path of the lightning in Matthew 24, 27. However, this version in Luke refutes that we must interpret those words in any special manner. Rather, either analogy, whether east to west or one part of heaven to another, only draws a picture for the listener which depicts how sudden the coming return of Christ would be when it happens. And of course, the book of Acts says that he will return in exactly the same manner that he left us. Verse 25, But first it is necessary for him to suffer many things and to be rejected by this race. The words this race can only refer to the corrupt mixed race of Judea, and it was clearly they who were responsible for the crucifixion. It cannot properly be rendered generation, as the King James Version has it, as the term is used today, because a great number of the people of that time did not reject Christ. They accepted him. They were avid listeners of Christ and were not his opponents. It is rather the Canaanite-Edomite-infiltrated leadership of Judea which rejected Christ and sought to destroy him. And ultimately, they did. This facet of the gospel, that Christ, that the expectant Messiah was not going to take the throne of David immediately, in spite of the words of Christ here, is one in which Paul had the hardest time convincing the people to whom he preached. The people who expected Christ also expected him to restore the kingdom to the children of Israel and to rule over them as king at that time. This is evident in John chapter 6, verse 15, where it is recorded that the people wanted to seize Christ and make him their king right then. Again, when he entered through the gates of Jerusalem in his triumphal march, they expected him to be made king at that time. And it didn't happen. Later, it is even in the words of the apostles, as they are recorded in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, where they say to him, where, where Luke writes, So then they who were gathered asked him, saying, Prince, then at this time, shall you restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not yours to know the times or the seasons which the Father has placed in his own authority. The people, and even the apostles, 
did not at all understand the prophecies. They only understood that the Messiah had arrived and should be their king. They didn't understand what Christ just told us here, that first it was necessary for him to suffer many things and to be rejected, as it is written. Much later, talking about his own struggle against the Jews, the disbelieving Judeans, Paul says in Acts chapter 26 from verse 22, However, obtaining assistance from Yahweh unto this day, I have stood bearing testimony to both the small and the great, saying nothing outside of the things which both the prophets and Moses said are going to happen. Whether the Christ was to suffer, whether first from a resurrection from the dead is a light going to be declared to both the people and to the nations. So it was a struggle in Paul's ministry to convince the children of Israel who had expectation in the Messiah that he was to die and be resurrected first, even though his own words tell us that here. They expected the kingdom to be restored immediately upon the appearance of the Messiah, and it didn't happen. Luke 17, verse 26. And just as it was in the days of Noah, thusly it shall be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were giving in marriage until the day in which Noah entered into the vessel and the deluge had come and destroyed them all. Again, there is a similar statement in Matthew, chapter 24, verses 37 through 39. These are the comments made concerning those verses when that chapter of Matthew was presented here last year, and I quote, in Revelation chapter 20, we see that Satan, the adversary, which is world Jewry, deceives the hordes of Gog and Magog to come against the people of God. These are the world's other races who are all tools of Satan. In Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, the enemies of God come under cover, which is the pretense of immigration. They come under cover like a cloud covering the land to surround the people of God. That's the state in which the white race is in today. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 27 through 30, the house of Israel and the house of Judah a sown with the offspring of beasts. And in fact, they are at this very time. In Isaiah chapter 56, verses 9 and 10, speaking of the ultimate regathering of the children of Israel, we see first the invitation to all the beasts of the field. All ye beasts of the field come to devour. Yeah, all ye beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Isaiah 56, verses 9 and 10 is an invitation by God to devour, to the other races to devour the children of Israel. 
Likewise, at Joel 2.25, Yahweh promises the children of Israel, And I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten, the canker worm, the caterpillar, and the palmer worm. And, as God calls them in Joel, my great army which I sent among you. My great army. His great army which he sent among the children of Israel. The canker worm, the caterpillar, the pommel worm, and the locust, the Arab, the Negro, the Mestizo, and the Oriental. So we see in all this that we are already surrounded by our enemies, that our would-be conquerors are already here, and that all of this is indeed permitted to come upon us as a test from Yahweh our God. All of these end-time prophecies converge in this understanding. That is how a great war could be waged against us. While at the same time, Christ says that just as the days of Noah, thusly shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For as they were in those days before the deluge, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, we are in the midst of that war right now. And our people do not even know it is being, it is being fought because most of them are agreeing to the actions of our enemies. Such is the Jewish world order of political correctness, multiculturalism, and diversity, which is all tantamount to world communism. That's the end of my quote from my Matthew presentation. Today we are being devoured socially by mingling our seed with the seed of beasts, marrying and giving in marriage. In the days of Noah, a reference to the events of Genesis chapter 6, Noah being chosen to be preserved because he was perfect in his descent. The fallen angels came down and mingled themselves with the daughters of men. At that time, a race-mixing society had developed just like the one which we see has developed here today. And the Jews the primary proponents of this race-mixing society, being descended, and this is certain in history, the Jews being descended in part from Cain and from the Rephaim, from the fallen angels. It is evident that the same parties responsible for the corruption in Genesis chapter 6 are also the primary perpetrators of the same corruption today. These other races which share in the general communion of our white nations, these are the violent ones who are taking the kingdom of Yahweh by force. These are the every man who presses into the kingdom, as the King James Version has it at Luke 16, 16. The Apostle Jude, in verses 12 through 13 of his epistle, calls these infiltrators spots in your feast of charity, feasting together without fear, tending to themselves, clouds without water being carried away by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead being uprooted, stormy waves of the sea foaming up their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of darkness is kept forever. 
whenever you see somebody of another race partaking in the fruits of your nation, there's spots in your feasts of charity. Likewise, the Apostle Peter calls them stains and disgraces, reveling in their deceits, feasting together with you, among other things which were similar to what Jude said. Obadiah, verse 15, promises the destruction of all those aliens eating and drinking upon Yahweh's holy mountain who are not of the people of God. Obadiah 15 says, For the day of Yahweh is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, being the children of Israel, and that's what the other nations, that's what the other races are doing right now. So shall all the heathen drink continually. Yeah, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. After they all swallow from the cup of Yahweh's wrath, all of these aliens shall be as though they had not existed. That is the future of the beasts who dwell among us. In the meantime, our people marrying and giving in marriage will be punished along with them. Luke 17, verse 28. Likewise, just as it came to pass in the days of Lot, they were reading, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But in the day that Lot departed from Sodom, it rained fire and sulfur down from heaven and destroyed them all. The Apostle Jude also compares the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah to the events of Genesis chapter 6. In verse 6 of his one short epistle, after mentioning the angels which left their first estate, which is certainly a reference to the events of Genesis chapter 6. Jude then says, in verse 7 of his, first epi- of his epistle, and I quote, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in like manner with them, committing fornication and having gone after different flesh, are set forth an example, undergoing the punishment of, of eternal fire. This is a warning to those eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Fornication, which is defined in that passage by Jude as the pursuit of different flesh, flesh other than your own, is also the word used by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, to describe another race-mixing event. Therefore, we know that fornication describes race-mixing. The event which Paul discusses in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 
was first recorded in Numbers chapter 25. That of the sons of Israel who committed fornication with the daughters of Moab. By this we know that the marrying and giving in marriage in the words of Christ here at Luke 17, 27 are surely a reference to race mixing. The eating and drinking, as we see here, in his description of Sodom, with the eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, and building of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah up to the time of their destruction, is merely a reference to the fact that although consumed in sin, life went on in these cities as though there was nothing wrong. Until the day when the judgment of Yahweh and sudden destruction came upon them. Likewise, it shall be with the race mixers of today. If we don't come out from Babylon, we shall suffer her punishments. Luke 17, verse 30. In accordance with these things, it shall be in the day that the Son of Man is revealed. All of these circumstances shall be extant at the return of Christ. All of these circumstances are extant today, at this very time. And therefore, we, have, we can only pray that Christ delivers us shortly. In that day, he, shall, he who shall be upon the housetop and his vessels in the house must not go down to take them. And he in the field, likewise, must not return for the things behind. You remember the wife of Lot. Whoever would seek to preserve his life shall lose it, but whoever would lose it shall be kept alive. But whoever would lose it shall be kept alive. I'm sorry. I'm putting my elisions in the wrong place. Entering the kingdom of heaven, we must account worldly possessions as nothing. Seeking to preserve our lives, meaning the things that we have acquired, the things that we fashion our life after, the things that we have built around us. Seeking to preserve our lives, we may lose them. Forsaking this life and its possessions, we shall find that a greater one awaits us. Lot's wife was being saved out of Sodom. However, she was concerned for the city, and she looked back upon it, and she suffered for it as it was being destroyed. At the sound of the trumpet, neither do we be concerned for the life that we have now. Luke 17, 34. I say to you, in that night there shall be two men upon one couch. One shall be taken, and the other shall be left alone. There shall be two women grinding grain together. The one shall be taken, and the other left alone. First, let me state that the words men and women do not appear in the Greek in verses 34 and 35. Rather, they are inferred from the gender of the articles and pronouns. The Codex Sinaiticus wants all of verse 35, probably a scribal error. 
if I had to guess. The text found in the King James Version at verse 36 of Luke chapter 17 is attested to only by the Codex Beze and by some late Latin and Syriac manuscripts and in two late Greek minuscules which are designated by the numbers 700, which dates to the 11th century, and 579, which dates to the 13th. Luke 17.36 does not exist in the majority text. Yet, after the Codex Beze, the King James Version includes it. Luke 36 in the Codex Beze reads, Two men shall be in a field, one shall be taken, and the other shall be left alone. It's not important to doctrine, but the verse does not belong in Scripture. Apparently. Those being taken in this description of Christ, those being taken are not being raptured. The parable of the wheat and the tares where the tares are taken first and burned in the fire. The parable of the net, where the bad fish are removed, the bad kind of fish are removed and thrown in the fire. The parable of the goats and the sheep, where the goats are all taken first and thrown in the fire. These parables all indicate that the wicked are removed from society first. Ezekiel 38, a prophecy concerning the end time, basically tells us that the people of God who are left behind are going to spend many months burying the bodies of the dead, of the enemies of God who were destroyed. All of the parables and all of the prophecies indicate that the wicked are removed from society first, and that they are at that time, at the time of the return of Christ, going to be destroyed. Revelation chapter 19 draws an entire picture of that. The prayer which Christians are taught to pray by Christ indicates that the good people are left behind so that things be on heaven is on earth, I'm sorry, so that things be on earth as they are in heaven. It is, as portrayed in Revelation chapter 21, the city of God which descends to men and not men which ascend to God. It is in the promises of the prophets which are also quoted by Paul, namely 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the tabernacle of God, which comes to dwell with men, and not men who ascend to dwell with God. Two men shall be upon one couch, one shall be taken, and the other shall be left alone. That's the guy that you want to be. There shall be two women grinding grain together. One shall be taken and the other left alone. That's the gal that you want to be. Real Christians 
want to be left behind. Verse 37, and replying, they said to him, where, prince? So he said to them, wherever the body is, there also shall the eagles be gathered together. This is similar to a statement found in Matthew chapter 24. And remember, that is a different discourse. However, Christ says in verse 28, wherever the corpse may be, there the eagle shall be gathered. The body, or the corpse, or carcass, as it is in Matthew chapter 24, from the word which Christ had used there, the corpse at which the eagles are gathered must be the body of the woman, the woman who joined herself to the beast, Mystery Babylon, the woman, of course, of the people of Israel. And that is where the vultures and the parasites, the eagles, or every unclean and hated bird, that is where they are found which is described in Revelation chapter 18. Find those nations today on the earth. Find those nations which are being devoured by the Antichrist Jews and overrun with every unclean and hated bird. Find those nations and you have found the people of God, true Israel. And of course, the description can only apply to the white race as it is today. And historically, we can demonstrate that we are the children of Israel. Thank you for listening. And praise Yahweh. I will be here tomorrow night with Sword Brethren. We will be doing our presentation on Lewis McFadden's speech concerning the Federal Reserve, part two. I will be here next Friday with an exposition of Luke chapter 18, Yahweh willing. Thank you and good night.